Amen. All right. So last week, Mark kicked off our fall series, and we're calling it Bear Witness. We've got this bear and one more to go. Um, we have a few weeks till Advent. Until then, we're going to be looking at stories of men and women and things from the Old and New Testament. We're going to look at how God reveals to us his character and his nature through them. How through them, God reveals his plan, his plan to redeem and restore his broken image bearer. So for today, I would like for you to meet Mr. Charlton Heston. <laughs> Everybody who's under like my age is like, dude, that's Moses. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, he's also known as Moses. So you may be familiar with some of the stories, story that Beth just told. Moses as a baby is placed in a basket and he's sent down the river. He ends up being raised in the palace of Egypt's Pharaoh. He murders an Egyptian slave master. After he does that, after he crosses that line, he's out on the run, and it's when he's on the run that he comes face to burning bush with a God who calls himself Yahweh. That God sends him back to Egypt to lead God's people to freedom from slavery and oppression, to lead them through a parted sea, to lead them for 40 years as they wander through the wilderness until they reach the doorstep of that land that God promised the family of Abraham that Mark told you about last week. Now during all of this, especially during these 40 years, Moses meets with God. And he often meets with God on top of a mountain. And when he comes down from that mountain, he delivers to Israel God's law. First in 10 commandments, and then 603 more. For all of you math whizzes, how many is that total? 613. Thanks, Bill Ford. <laughs> so check this out. This is a little bit of a side, but I thought this was really fascinating. Uh, the rabbis throughout history tell us that in the Old Testament, there are 613 laws. There are 365 dues. A due for every day of the year. There are 246 don'ts. They believed that's how many body parts a human had. So a don't for every part of the body. Bill Ford's doing the math. Where are we at? <laughs> Man, I knew you were going to check me on this. That's 611. We're not to 613 yet. Because they count one as the Lord your God is one. That is actually a command. And the other is the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So we get these 613 laws, and what's really um, kind of interesting is that if you put them all together, what you find out is that that's actually not enough. Like, it seems like it's a lot, right? But think about everything that could possibly happen in life. That's actually not enough to tell the people exactly what to do all the time. So throughout history, the rabbis, they write what's called the Talmud and the Mishnah, and they come up with hundreds and thousands of more specific instructions on how to live life as a faithful member of God's family. So the question is, why do we only get 613? It's interesting. And why don't we get them as one long list? Why do we get them in the midst of a story? There's a reason. These stories and the 613 laws they are written down and they make up those first five books of the Old Testament. That's called the Pentateuch, which just means five books. It's also called the Torah, which means the law or commands or instructions. Uh, another quick interesting side note, sorry. Uh, the word Torah, the Hebrew language, the letters are also numbers. 
So if you take the letters in the word Torah and you add up the numbers together, guess what you get? 613. These books are also called the books of Moses. This is his witness to Israel and to us. His testimony about who God is and what God has done. So the fifth and final book of the Torah, one that you're all very familiar with, I'm sure, is the book of Deuteronomy, right? Yeah. Uh, So it's actually given uh, to the generation of Israelites that are going to take their first steps into the promised land. It's, It's really just one long speech. And in this speech, Moses reminds them of what came before, and then he prepares them for what's going to lie ahead. So I want to read you this from Deuteronomy 10. This is near the beginning of Moses' story. He says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for what? For your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants above all nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts therefore and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Really quick, which came first, God's love or the people's obedience? God's love. Let's go to the next slide. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourself were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him, hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders that you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. So Moses, he goes on to encourage them and remind them to love and obey the Lord. And then starting in chapter 12, and then all the way through chapter 26, He lays out God's law for them. And it is some fascinating reading. I'm being sarcastic. (laughs) It's really hard to get through. Here's some examples of the kind of things that God leaves for his people. These are uh, just a couple examples of like what's clean and unclean to eat. God says, do not eat any detestable thing. Okay, sounds good. What's next? Of all the creatures living in the water, you may eat any that has fins and scales, but anything that does not have fins and scales, you may not eat. For you, it is unclean. Okay, now, if I weren't allergic to shellfish, this would be a problem. But I am, so I can handle this one too. But for some of you, you're like, wait a second, red flag. All right, keep going. All flying insects are unclean to you. Do not eat them. Okay, (laughs) no problem. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay. We're going to come back to that one in a second. So I want to wrestle with this. I'm making the argument that Moses' witness to God's character, his nature, his power, his plan and purpose for us, it's found in these first five books of the Old Testament. And in those books, 
we find these 613 laws. And of those 613 laws, do not cook a goat in its mother's milk is one of them. (laughs) So here's my question. What are we supposed to do with this? What is the purpose of God's law in the Old Testament? Why is it there in the first place? And what are we supposed to do with it now? Like 3,000 years after it was first written. Do you believe that the 613 laws in the Old Testament, do you believe that they are a checklist of things to do and things not to do? And if you check every box, you're going to earn God's love and favor. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is just waiting to judge and smite you because you ate a shrimp? No, most of us are going to say no. Okay, then maybe there are instructions just guiding us on how to live a good, righteous, and moral life. Maybe that sounds a little more likely to you. Worship God alone, honor your mother and father, don't lie, steal, or kill. Those are all reasonable instructions for living a good life. All right, well, if that's the case, then what about this one from chapter 15? At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Every creditor shall cancel any loan that they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people. The Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. Okay, I'm guessing maybe for some of us, all of a sudden, we're clutching our wallets, holding on a little tighter to our portfolios, and we notice, hey, you know what? It's like all of a sudden we become good biblical scholars. You know what? He said that to the Israelites, not to me. (laughs) We quickly forget that we've been adopted into the family of God, right? Okay, how about this one? Uh, This one's fun. Uh, If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him, bring him to the elders at the gate of his town, then all the men of the town are to stone him to death. And at that, the teenage boys are like, excuse me for a second. (laughs) I mean, y'all, we're not supposed to stone rebellious kids. (laughs) Like, like no matter how much we want to. (laughs) there would be no kids left, right? And there is absolutely zero evidence that Israel ever did this either. None. The laws of the Old Testament, they are not a checklist of do's and don't. That if we are obedient, we will cause God to love us. That we will get God to be faithful to us. And they are not a simple set of instructions on how to live a good, moral, and righteous life then what are they? (laughs) What's the point? Why do we need Moses' witness today? And I'm gonna argue the answer to that question is actually really important. Because if we misunderstand the purpose of God's law, it can lead us to do a couple really dangerous things. To use it as a weapon against others or to just ignore it altogether. And I think there's another option. So I want to share with you, uh, this is from a professor and scholar named Dr. John Salehammer. He has a way of understanding the first five books of the Old Testament that has really been transformative to me, and I'm going to try to summarize it as best I can. Uh, Knowing that I am not required to keep the law of Moses in order for God to love me and be faithful to me and provide salvation for me, Dr. Salehammer has helped me to see how Moses' witness is still a vital part of what it means for me to have an act of faith in the living God. 
So he gives us four purposes for the law. And he says this, this is the first one. He says, these laws or commands, they were given to Israel, a particular people, at a specific time in their history, for very practical purpose. And the most important purpose was to set them apart from the nations around them. So you remember that command that I mentioned earlier about cooking a goat in its mother's milk. This is the perfect example of how this was intended to work. So I'm not an expert in kosher law, but I do understand that meat and dairy have to be kept separate. Separate plates, those plates are even, they have to be cleaned in separate machines. All of that to observe this one command, that's where this comes from. That's why cheeseburgers aren't kosher. (laughs) So look, my allergy allows me to accept that I can't have shellfish, but I'm out if I can't eat a cheeseburger either. Right? I mean, yesterday was National Cheeseburger Day. <laughs> what, was, what was I supposed to do? <laughs> so what if that's legalism, and what if it totally misses the point? And here's how we know it is. Archaeologists, they excavated a Canaanite city that's dated back to the time when Israel first entered into the Promised Land. And after excavating it, they found what turned out to be this really extensive library that had documents that described what ancient Canaanite life was like. It tells us all about their practices. And they found evidence that a common tradition and custom for the Canaanite people was what? To cook goat in its mother's milk. And y'all, it's as simple as that. Look, there may be health benefits to this practice. I'm sure there are. It's probably healthy to not eat cheeseburgers. But this command wasn't about establishing a specific diet primarily. It wasn't primarily about medical or hygienic concerns. First and foremost, it is a way of saying, the pagan nations around you, they do this thing. You don't do it. (laughs) Don't do that. It's just a way of distinguishing God's people from the nations, teaching them to live differently than the world around them. God's wrath wasn't and isn't aroused by shrimp and cheeseburgers. These commands were given to Israel at a specific time in their history for a very practical purpose, to set them apart. His second point, the second purpose, these commands were given to Israel, they were instructed to observe them so that through them, through Israel, God's wisdom and mercy and justice would be on display for the nations to see so that the nations would be blessed and come to know who God is. You see, as barbaric as some of God's laws might seem to us today, if you compare God's law with the laws of the nations around Israel at the time, God's law is radically liberating, especially to people of low and no status. Laws concerning women and refugees, like we read earlier, those were radically liberating. Listen to this about escaped slaves. It says, if a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like and in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. Do you see what a 3,000-year-old document just said? Free the slave. (laughs) Set him free. It doesn't say keep him and let him work for you. It says let him go wherever he wants. Free the slave, y'all. This is absolutely radical compared to the laws and customs of their neighbors. God's law in practice 
was meant to reveal God's wisdom and justice to Israel's neighbors. Now the third point, and this is where this gets really difficult, God's law actually reveals a really serious problem in us, that God's people are fundamentally unable to live in obedience to it. That we are unable to be completely obedient to God's law. And this is the pattern of the first five books of the Old Testament. From Genesis through Exodus, God gives laws a few at a time, and then each section of those laws is separated by stories that describe why those laws are needed, and then it shows how Israel immediately disobeys them. That pattern starts with the Ten Commandments. And along with those Ten Commandments, there's actually 40 other commands that go along with it. Moses comes down from the mountain, he delivers those commands to the people, and guess what happens? The people of Israel make an idol and worship a golden calf. There were only 50 laws at that time, and they couldn't even keep number one and two. Moses gives testimony. He shares God's law with the people and the people immediately betray God and disobey his commands. And this never changes. This is the pattern. And is this same pattern not alive and well in us today? Of course it is. As God's people are getting ready to enter into the promised land, Moses gives one final speech. He gives this prophecy over them. And y'all, this is how Deuteronomy ends. This is the end of the first five books of the Bible. And it is brutal. Listen to this. He says, take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a what? A witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you had been rebellious against the Lord while I am still alive with you, how much more will you rebel after I die? For I know that after my death, you are sure to become utterly corrupt and turn away from the command, from the way I have commanded you. I mean, he's right, but honestly, that's like the worst, all right, guys, now go take the land kind of speech that I've ever heard in my life. That's how the Pentateuch ends. It ends with this cliffhanger that you're not going to do it. <laughs> Thankfully, the Bible doesn't end there. The law, Moses' witness, was given to Israel, a particular people at a specific time in their history for practical purposes, primarily to set them apart from the nations around them so they would be different. If they were obedient to the law, then God's wisdom and justice and mercy would have been revealed to all the nations. Israel would have been a blessing to them. But they were utterly incapable of obeying God. They were stiff-necked, hard-hearted, so lost and broken that they simply could not live in obedience to God. And that leads us to Dr. Salehammer's final point. The fourth purpose of the law for Israel and for us today is that it reveals the truth that even in our disobedience, God is faithful and that only God can fix the brokenness that's deep within us. Moses' final words, as unencouraging as they might be, y'all, we know that they're true. God's people were rebellious, hard-hearted, stiff-necked. That just means refusing to turn and go the other way. 
They were utterly corrupt. And so are we. I mean, look at the world around us and tell me that's not true. I don't have to look very far. I only have to look at my own life and I know it's true. Like we are stuck in our ways. We're determined to be the masters of our own destiny. We're determined to define for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. And only God can repair creatures who are so completely broken that they've come to be convinced that they are greater, smarter, wiser, and more just than the creator who made them. Only God can do that. So what are we to do with the witness of Moses today? What are we supposed to do with these ancient, odd instructions and commands? And like I said earlier, that question is so important because our tendency is to do one of two things. It's either to use them as a weapon against others who we have judged to be sinners. And that's really easy to do. It's easy to get caught up in that. But we have to remember if the 613 laws were meant to be a checklist of do's and don'ts and that we have to obey those laws if we're going to receive God's love and God's favor, then y'all, we better gird our loins and get ready for significant changes in our way of life. If that kind of obedience was required for God to love and save us, then there is no hope because we know that we can't do it. And there are some ways to tell if we're doing this, if we're using the law as a weapon against others. Some really simple ways. In our own lives, somebody does something wrong to me. Maybe they lie to me. Over time, guess what they become? They're the liar. Right? Someone who told a lie is now defined as a liar. I have simplified an image bearer of God down to one trait. A trait that is present in my own heart. And we don't just do that to individuals, we do it to entire people groups. When we refer to an entire group of people by the nature of their sin, even if it's wrong, but when we refer to them first, not as image bearers of God, but as fill in the blank, if we minimize an entire population down to their one intolerable sin, then we are using the law as a weapon. And the reality is that weapon could be used against us. So maybe we don't use them as a weapon against others. I don't think we intend to. And maybe we don't do that often. Maybe, maybe we're happy, you know what, let's just let everybody do whatever they want. I mean, as long as it doesn't hurt me or anybody that I love, what, what does it matter? That tendency is just to ignore God's law altogether. To put ourselves in the position of judging God's law, of judging them as ancient and barbaric and irrelevant to modern life. Deciding, you know what, probably the culture can do a better job of defining what's right and wrong. We can do a better job of defining what's right and wrong because we're so enlightened. That completely writes off the first five books of God's word and makes them irrelevant. And if the first five books of God's story are irrelevant, then what's the point of the rest of it? see, the reality is both of these tendencies, they miss the point of the scriptures and they are wildly dangerous for those who desire to be in a relationship with the God who already loves and who has already been faithful to us. But those commands are there for a purpose. They're there for a reason. Those commands and those instructions, they wake us up, right? I would argue even the weird ones, they at least get our attention. <laughs> they turn our attention and our focus away from ourselves away from our circumstances, 
away from the world around us and they turn us back to God. They call us to repentance, to simply turn back to him. I'll tell you all more about this in a couple weeks, uh, but Travis, Andrew, and I were in Germany last week and we went and visited one of the concentration camps in Germany. And since I got back, I've been reading a book about somebody who survived one of the camps in Auschwitz. Um, and he tells the story that through everything they went through, and he's very specific about what they went through, the one consistent thing is that the people of God kept the Torah. Now, they couldn't keep all of it, right? They, they couldn't control their diet because they could only eat what they were given. But the things they could control, they controlled. And do you know why? Because no matter what was happening around them, returning to and keeping the Torah as best they could reminded them of God. It drew their attention away from their circumstance and back to the God who suffered in the midst of that with them. So practically speaking, I think there's some things that we can do. And one really simple thing that we can do is that we can put in practice something that we find throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And it's really helpful for us, something we can use today. It's a simple practice of summarizing the law. And it's a practice that's handed down to us from the kings and the prophets and the rabbis and even our Messiah does it. King David in Psalm 24, he summarizes the law in 11 commands. Go home and read it today. It describes what a faithful person is and there's 11 commands. The prophet Isaiah boils it down to six. In Micah 6, 8, he takes it down to three. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If I were doing those three things all the time, would I be living differently than the world around me? Would I be revealing something to the world around me about who God is and what God does? And then of course, Jesus himself, he does the same thing. He's asked what was intended to be a trick question. They were trying to set him up. And in his answer, he offers us the greatest summary of all. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's good, but it's this next verse that matters. What does he say? All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. That's what they're all about. If the law is causing you to be pulled away from God and if it's causing you to hurt your neighbor, then you are not living in obedience to God's law. We have actually claimed those words as our purpose statement here at First Pres, because we know that we are not faithful witnesses when we use the law as a weapon against people we've decided are sinners. And we know that we are not faithful witnesses if we've become convinced that we've evolved past our need for such an ancient and barbaric story, such ancient ways of living on earth. We know that our love for God and our love for others, that is the fulfillment of God's purpose in our lives and for us. That is our witness to a lost and broken world. Moses' testimony is alive in us today. We are called to bear that witness each and every day wherever we find ourselves. So y'all, we cannot look at any part of the Bible as irrelevant. It is all God's story. And those first five books set the whole thing up. They end on a cliffhanger for a reason. If it ends by saying we can't fix this by ourselves, only God can, guess what comes next? The story of how God decides to do that. And when we reflect on Moses' witness, 
when we really understand and read and engage with this story, as weird as it is, we actually begin to see ourselves in it. We identify with the people, and that's when we finally come to understand that God's commands, his instructions for them, have now been passed on to us. That we are a particular people at a specific time and place in history. And they've been passed on to set us apart from the world around us. So that we would serve as a testimony to the wisdom and mercy and justice of God. And as we keep reading, we realize that like the Israelites, our lives witness to the truth that we are incapable of keeping God's word on our own. That we cannot save ourselves. That we are in need of a savior. And that only God can transform our refusal to turn, our stiff necks. Only God can give us a new heart. Only God can restore that broken image in us. Amen? I just finished up a 100-day Bible reading with a group of people, and we're gonna take a little break. We'll do another one in the spring. But y'all, it's tough to get through that stuff. I'm like being honest. Leviticus, oh my gosh. But it matters. We need to know God's word. We believe here one of our values is that we need to be biblically literate. We need to know what it says, but we need to know how to read it. And when we can understand that these laws were given to us in the context of a story, not as a constitution. Honestly, it's, it's less like a constitution and more like Hamilton, right? Like the Old Testament is like what happened and then how the laws came out of what happened. <laughs> and then how everything fell apart because nobody did what they were supposed to. <laughs> like the old, that's, that's the Old Testament. It's not a checklist. It's not a document. It's a story. And there's mercy in that because a story invites us in and helps us to not only see our place in it, but to recognize the beauty and the glory of who God is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, King David, uh, he says that he rejoices, he loves the Torah. (laughs) That's strange. (laughs) It sounds strange to us when we read it until we understand what it's for. When we understand that the purpose is to draw us closer to you, to make us a people who are set apart from the world around us so that we can show a broken world a different way of life. And when we recognize that we can't do it on our own, but only through your strength, then you are glorified and we are transformed. When we understand it like that, then maybe we can come to say, just like King David, I love your law. I rejoice in your word. We pray that you'd give us the courage and the strength and the patience to engage with it, to read it, to wrestle with it, and to come to know you more as we do. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.